0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello? Yes, it is. I want to uh, talk tonight about the comparing mind. The comparing mind, which also includes the judging mind <clears throat> in uh, in Buddhist psychology or the the model of enlightenment, actually, from the uh, the earliest teachings, uh, this quality is known as conceit, <clears throat> and it's really any kind of putting ourselves above, below, or even equal to, in the sense of separating ourselves out from from others and from the rest of life. The conceit of I am, the Buddha called it. One comforting thought that I have about this quality is that... um, in the model of enlightenment, there are four stages. Perhaps you're familiar with this. There's a stream enterer, and the uh, once returner, and the non returner, the third stage of enlightenment, and then the final stage is the arhat, the fully enlightened being. And even at the third stage of enlightenment, there is that quality of conceit or the fetter, it's sometimes referred to, of the comparing mind, the judging mind. So if you still see judging in your own mind, then it just means that you're no higher than the third stage of enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a lot of company. That's one thing to consider. <clears throat> this is uh, this is from the Buddha. He says... Um, in this Discourse on Free From All Opinion. Seeing misery in philosophical views without adopting any of them, searching for truth, I discovered inward peace. One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason is lost in dispute. The sage, for whom the notions equal and unequal do not exist, with whom should he enter into dispute? An accomplished person does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions and comparisons, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) So the comparing mind, have you noticed, and when I say comparing again, I'm including the judging mind, Uh, have you noticed how it operates here in these days. When does it come up for you? Just notice in the last few days or day or 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes, when does it come up for you? On retreats, often it comes up in social situations. Well, what could be recorded as social situations. You know, It's one thing to be with your own mind in the quiet of the meditation hall. But that comparing mind really starts cranking up when you're in the dining hall or in the walking and you're getting your shoes and there's a whole lot of people around, a whole lot of good subjects to go compare yourself with. I, uh, I notice how interesting it is, how quickly we can put ourselves either above or lower than, um, depending upon what mood we're in, can see somebody who's walking really slowly, and you say, wow, they're such a good meditator, I could never do it like that. Or you see somebody walking really fast or at a natural pace, Boy, look, that person is just themselves, no pretension at all, just just so natural. Right? <laughs> or if you're in another mood in your mind, see somebody walking slowly, who do they think they are? I miss Mindfulness over here, you know? <laughs> or somebody fast, don't they get it? You know? <laughs> they've been doing this for years. Or this is a week or four weeks they've been here don't they get it you know the exact same act on the outside but what goes on inside is very different i uh, at one point on uh, one retreat became so not only aware but almost overwhelmed by how much my comparing mind was going rampant and particularly, as far as presentation goes, that's another aspect of the, of the comparing mind, just looking how we're doing. You know, and I would be doing slow walking. i kind of get into a slow walking groove when I'm uh, into, into practice. And I'd be all by myself and just going, lifting, moving, placing, and really getting into it. Somebody would come into the room or where I was. And all of a sudden, there'd be a whole different reason for practicing. And I'd start noting, lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, (laughs) lifting, looking good. And after a while, looking good became like the main label that I was using. It's very humbling. And in our culture, particularly, we, we have such a a competitive culture. We get these messages all the time, you know. We're number one. You get those big sponge, you know, foam (laughs) at sports fans, you know. Number one, we're number one. And that's the message. The United States, we're number one. And everyone's proud to be number one. Or my religion is the best, or my race is the best, or my (sighs) whatever. My class is the best. My football team is the best. You know, that one I can relate to. <laughs> we are the best. <laughs> and then it goes on to our personal relationship. Oh, look at my body. You know, Look at the ways that it's not good enough, or it's better than, or my mind. You know, sometimes when I'm around and in a room full of brilliant people know, I become very dumb, you know, God, look at their minds, you know, it's just one thought from identifying and comparing, look at my accomplishments, look at my shortcomings, look at how messed up I am, you know, I remember when I was in college, you know, that was kind of like my badge of honor, you know, you think you're messed up, I'm really messed up, you know. I'll match you and raise you." And somehow it's so so hard not to do when you're around other human beings, you know, to somehow put yourself above or lower or, oh yeah, they're equal, they're my peers, I can feel comfortable with them. Even that is this notion of conceit, comparing, because it's you and other. You know, you go out on the land. Say you're walking back uh, in the woods where there's some trees. You probably don't get into the habit of saying, "Oh, that's the best tree in the forest." You know, gee, if that tree were only a little less gnarled, then it would be a good tree. You know, every tree has its own character. But when it comes to us, particularly because we're human beings, when we see other human beings, complications arise. Competition is uh, a very uh, prevalent issue on retreat. I remember the first time I I did a a three-month retreat, I saw this competitive streak in me. You know, I was going to practice. You know, if anybody else was practicing hard, I could practice harder. You know? <clears throat> and I remember going, being up at uh, late night sittings. And in the early days, I would I would stay up really late. And then as my practice has, has uh, continued over the years, I I go to bed at the regular, reasonable time, and then I, I wake up early. But those first few days, those first few years, waking up. Uh, staying up late was really the hallmark of what I thought a good yogi could do. You know, so there I'd be in the hall, you know, and then it would dwindle down to five, and four, and three, two. What's that person still staying up? Yeah, you know. And this went on you know, one night after another after, for, for a couple of weeks and finally I went to my interview. I said, I think there might be something a little off here, you know, because <laughs> I'm into, you know, competition practice. You know? And I was told, this is Joseph I reported to, that he, he knew very well, he said I had exactly the same thing. There was this Danish guy who would stay up right through the night and I was going to be there. And then he said, you know, it's okay. Whatever gets you there to practice is okay. Now just watch those thoughts. Watch those competition thoughts and see where they arise. Because somehow it's motivating you at least to practice. And the mindfulness itself is a purifying force. So if you have that competition practice, I suggest that, suggest that to you. Let, it, let you. let it give you the energy to throw your whole being into seeing what's really true and how you are complicating things. We have this very strong tendency to look outside of ourselves for validation, external referenting, it's sometimes called, you know that maybe if somebody recognizes you or sees that you're a slow walker, you know, somehow you know, there's a score being kept in the sky or maybe if somebody looks at you outside of retreat you know as you're walking down the street and kind of notices you oh gee that made my day somebody noticed me maybe they think i'm good looking you know maybe i think i'm ugly you know <laughs> and just a look from someone perhaps on this retreat you know somebody you just caught them glancing at you and it can stir your mind up for hours. What do, they, what do they think of me? What do they mean by that? And either feeling really good if you think it was a positive thought or really lousy if it's an otherwise. In interviews, you know, if it, if say if a, a teacher didn't get much sleep the night before and happened to yawn during your interview, what would that be like, right? Death. You know. <laughs> when you're giving a talk, just to give you a, a sense on, on this side, if you see somebody start looking at their watch, you know, <laughs> it does things to the mind. It just does. So you have to kind of take this all with a, a sense of, of humor. I came across one, uh, a cartoon in the newspaper, it's these uh, three people in the office all seemingly engrossed in their work by their computer terminals. And there's this uh, one guy, first this uh, African-American fellow, who's saying, you, hear the, you see the, the bubbles in his, in his thought mind, in his thought waves. He's saying, the vibrations are overwhelming. Two white people afraid of a smart, aggressive African-American and then you see the woman behind it, at her desk and her thought bubble is saying, I'm sick and tired of their patronizing macho glances. They can't stand a woman in a responsible position. And then the last guy, his thought bubble, I can see it in their eyes. They don't like me because I'm gay. You know. <laughs> Just projection is rampant. You know? Have you noticed it in, in your mind? you have no idea. Actually, on retreat, one thing you can almost surely bet on is whatever projections you think people are having, they are lost in their own projections about what they think other people are thinking of them. They're not busy checking you out too much. (laughs) They've got other things to do. comparing my, I remember my early years when I was teaching, my second, third year, going to Yucca Valley, and it'd be like, you know, 100, 150 people or so on the retreat, and um, Joseph Goldstein would give a talk one night, you know, just like pearls of Dharma, you know, coming out of his mouth. Jack would give a talk the next night, you know, with his Inspiring way. And I'd give the talk the third night, you know. And it would be like, uh, right, what are people thinking? I know what I'd be thinking, you know. It is really humbling, right? Besides comparing yourself with others, then there's also the comparing mind that comes with our own high standards of what we think we should be doing. I mean it's one thing to be feeling confident that you're as good as most other yogis on the retreat. It's another thing to compare yourself with your last clear sitting when you were really doing it, when you really knew how to do this practice. We have just such high standards for ourselves and the the difficulty in having a very sweet or inspiring, focused, concentrated experience is then we somehow think that's what we should be doing all the time that's what we need to maintain, and we've fallen because you know somehow we did something wrong. used to um, go into Upandita. Uh, this Burmese teacher that that most of you heard of, and that, that Howie talked about the other night, and he would ask each day you saw him every day. He he'd say, "Tell me about your clearest sitting." You know, and first, I thought, "Clearest sitting?" I thought we're not supposed to get into you know clear, unclear, or good or bad. But you know, out of out of twenty four hours, you're bound to have a few moments of clarity. So I'd <laughs> I'd report my you know, clearest sitting, and then I'd, I'd qualify it with, you know, but, and this is just kind of like truth in advertising, you know, the, the, the truth is, you know, I had a number that were, were kind of, you know, not nearly that clear, and I did this for a few days running, I'd I report my clearest sitting, but the other ones weren't, weren't really like that, and then he, he said, you don't have to tell me that, you don't have to add on that, that piece, that's extra. And I kind of got that he knew that there's no way you're going to maintain your clearest sitting. There are fluctuations in mindfulness and concentration just like in anything. And it was such a relief to realize that I didn't have to maintain. But we still get into remembering our best retreat or our deepest experience, whether it's on the cushion or an in interaction with, with someone, and keep on grasping for repeat or surpassing that. It's, it's merciless. It's ne- never-ending. This conceit of I am, what's called the conceit of I am, is really rooted in fear that we're not enough. Because if you really see the truth or get a sense of, of yourself as being complete just as you are, then there's no problem. But as soon as you get in, into that mode of, I'm not good enough, and if I were only a little bit better, then I'd be acceptable, you, know, you can have... Five billion, every person on this planet line up and tell you, you are good enough. And if you're not feeling good enough, it won't make a difference. Okay. How many times do we look for outside of ourselves for validation and might think, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe they see something I don't, or more likely, oh, I fooled them. And so their opinion doesn't matter at all. You know. When they know you better than you do, they see what you, who you are even when you can't. And that fear of not being enough, of somehow not being worthy to be alive, you know, is, is very, very debilitating. This unworthiness, I just want, want to say a few words about unworthiness. I remember in, uh, uh, on one three-month course, it was uh, 1979, and the Dalai Lama came to visit IMS. It was really wonderful. Imagine being in the middle of three months and then being visited by the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Um, and one person asked this, this question, he said, uh, what, what should I do with my um, thoughts of unworthiness? And the Dalai Lama actually had to be, he had to have it explained to him a few times just what this question was about, because he didn't relate at all to it. Oh, you mean that you're not good enough? And he looked at the guy and he said very firmly, uh, this, is, this is wrong, this is incorrect understanding. You're absolutely wrong if you have this thought. You know, and Imagine the Dalai Lama telling you you're wrong. Yeah. But if, they're, if he's telling you you're wrong about not being worthy, it's, it's a good kind of scolding. You know? And he said it with a lot of compassion and, and love in his heart, you're absolutely wrong. You know? What makes you think that everything else belongs in the universe and you don't? That you're a mistake? Everything else can be perfect, and somehow you don't belong. This is a great misperception. In a way, what it's doing when we we take on those feelings of unworthiness is, it's really insulting the Dharma, or insulting God, if you want to think of it in, in, in one way, that somehow... To think I'm not good enough, you know, oh God or the Dharma it made a mistake. When you are just who you are, just the perfection of life coming through you in, that, in this form. But still we get caught in these thoughts and we have to be very patient with them. I, uh, I went to study with this... Uh, Indian teacher Pundraji, a number of years ago, and he, one of one of his great gifts that that he he would do was just he'd make everyone feel so worthy and so loved and you know enlightened. You're already enlightened, don't you see it? You know, it was good to get that kind of a stroke. Sometimes people believed it and. Uh, Sometimes that was wonderful, and sometimes it w- was complicated. When they, especially when they thought they finished their work, but but he's seeing who you really are underneath that confusion. And I, uh, I was was with him, and uh, he talks about um, uh, about absolutely having a right to be free and awakened. And I said, we had a chance to, I would ask him lots and lots of questions. And I I said, uh, you know, how do I know that my karma is good enough, is, is ripe enough to actually be free? You know, because I've read that, you know, if the karmic conditions are ripe, you know, there might be over many, many lifetimes, you know, perhaps there will be the complete liberation of of mind and heart. And he looked at me, you know. I said, actually, how do I know if my karma, or in your terms, how do I know if I have the grace? Because he would talk a lot about grace. And he said, grace? You talk about grace? He says, look, look at your situation. You've come from far across the world because you have such a hunger. Here you are, very good practice conditions, good teacher, good situation, good yearning in the heart, grace, you're neck deep in grace. (laughs) I remember, boy, when he said, neck deep in grace, don't you see your neck deep in grace? You don't even see it. And in a way, we are all, I mean, think about it. We are all neck deep in grace. How it was that here we are having the opportunity to practice together in this beautiful setting with such sincerity and our life situation and circumstances allow us to do that. We're all neck deep in grace. And yet those thoughts of unworthiness can come in. The Buddha said, when you get confused in this conceit of I am, see who you really are. Who are you really? And what he said, if you take a good look, what you take to be I or me are really a kind of coming together of different components that he called the five khandas or skandas." that are form, this body, feelings, having the capacity to um, take in experience and notice uh, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality of a moment, perception, which recognizes what's happening, mental formations, thoughts and various emotions, and consciousness, a consciousness that knows. That's who you really are, these five khandas, or aggregates, sometimes called, or aggregates, really the word means heaps. You're five heaps of these thing, that, things that you put together, they come out, and they are you. Okay? You are this mind-body process that you take to be I and me. And the one of those five skandhas that really creates the problem in this comparing mind is the one of perception. Not that it's bad. It's good that we can perceive things. It's good that we can recognize things. But it is very quick to compare because the, the skanda of perception says this form and, uh, and color is a piece of paper. This is zafu. This is cup. This is person. And it files things away and remembers. And so each new stimuli, stimulation, stimulus, taking in information, you are filing it according to past experience. And that, it's not a bad thing, but it's very easy to get caught in that comparing mind of better or worse than when there is a memory or a sense of separation. This form, this human being is better than, or worse than, or different from this one. Or this experience is different from the one that I had two hours ago. And we get lost in our perceptions and believe them to be not as good or better than. When you see who you really are beyond those five skandhas, who you really are then you get in touch with um, what Ajahn Sumedho has a beautiful way of of putting it the shining through of the divine that right within this body-mind process there is something much more extraordinary than the little self that we take ourselves to be that allows love to come through. This mind-body process allows love to come through, allows awareness to be conscious of experience. That is the good news. When you really see who you are, you know, sometimes you might, I remember hearing this, uh, this phrase, you know, self-knowledge is usually bad news. Well, when you really see who you are, it's wonderful news because you're not who you thought you were. You're much faster than that. And to recognize that is really, it not only feels good from the inside, but it is a bodhisattva act to see who you really are. It's a gift that you give to everyone else, because the more you see who you are, the more it enables others to see who they are. Because then that sense of separation isn't operating, where you feel contracted, where you feel judging, or you feel judged, and there is just this sense of connection. And that somehow can resonate and allow that that feeling to be felt by somebody else just by remembering who you really are. So this practice of loving kindness and you know, doing uh, metta for yourself, it's, a, it's an act of generosity to everyone who you know. I remember hearing uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, again, very quotable fellow, He said, he was asked about um, shyness and this feeling of unworthiness. And and he said, you know, timidity is just another ego trip. It is. Timidity is just another ego trip. It's this stance of, "I'm, I'm not good enough. And it's not seeing the truth of things. Perhaps... You've heard this uh, from Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech. You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. What a gift to give others as well as yourself. So then the question might arise, okay, so how to work with this comparing mind, this judging mind? I'd like to just share some reflections I have on this, and perhaps even even better, you can come up with your own skillful ways that you work with it. In fact, before I, before I go on, perhaps just uh, go inside and... Reflect on a time, perhaps in these last few days, when you saw through it. You saw through that judging mind and really understood clearly. What did you understand? What did you see? What's your skillful way of working with the judging mind the comparing mind? Just even to see you have that capacity is is wonderful. It inspires faith and confidence. Okay, so I'll share with you now some of of my uh, reflections. The first thing that seems to be essential is learning forgiveness, practicing forgiveness. Now, what does that mean, forgiveness? It's not just kind of tolerating and saying, you know, okay, well, I'll let it slide this time, you know, but let's get your act together. Forgiveness is just this opening of the heart that comes when you really understand, you really see the truth of how this predicament is coming about. When you really see the habit that you've been cultivating so strongly over this, this lifetime. Now, I'll share a story that um, I've shared before uh, it was on another three-month retreat where I was really getting into uh, into slow walking, and I was all by myself. Again, when you're by yourself, you know you can just just do what feels right. And I was getting—I decided to get into this game, this exercise, to see how slowly I could go. Right? Just. Really, really slowly. You know, I wouldn't be self-conscious. Nobody else was around, just for the fun of it. It was great. It was fun. And in the middle of this exercise, somebody came into the walking room, who had just come onto the retreat. In those early years, they had a two-week retreat tacked on to the end of, towards the end of the three-month course. They they only did that for a few years, so that was not such a Great idea. <laughs> and you can really feel when somebody comes in from, from the outside. Right? So I thought this would be looking a little bizarre, but I wasn't going to change my game because you know, I was into it. So after about two minutes of continuing in this, this way, this person bolted out of the, the gym And in what I thought was the comparing mind and just, you know, in frustration. And as she crossed my field of vision, the thought came to me, wow, I really blew her mind. (laughs) She must think I am an incredible yogi, right? Which felt good for about one millionth of a second. And then in all its glory, this presentation and ego, and it, ooh, it was like I descended through this trap door of worms and pit and, you know, snakes, and it was it was so humbling. And in fact, I I ended up from uh, I didn't end up, but the next thing was from that slow walking, I started doing this. Pacing like I was a tiger, just saying, "My God, I've been sitting for two months. You know, haven't I gotten it? You know, jeez, so much ego and presentation. I'll never get out of this. You know, back and forth. And then, in a moment, I realized the the millions and millions of times that I had that kind of a thought." It was so familiar to me I, that I, I normally wouldn't have caught it, but I was I was so I was more focused than, than usual, and I caught it. And it was like, it was like, you know, being surround a fish being surrounded by water, you know. And in a moment, thinking of those millions of times in this lifetime, and if you think about it over countless lifetimes, just you know, forget about it. It's mind-boggling. Which then my mind went to countless lifetimes I've been practicing that mode. What did I think? In two months, I was going to unlearn it all? And that moment, that understanding of the conditioning, it was this deep wave of compassion that, that came over me, you know, ah, I'm doing the best I can. I really sincerely want to see through this, doing the best I can. And that moment was much more valuable than seeing how slow I could walk in the walking room. It has stayed with me 20 plus years. So just a moment of seeing it with kindness. And what I find is one of the best ways to notice with kindness is to actually change the tone of your noting if you use noting in your practice, the noting can sometimes drive some people crazy. Some people, if you have the temperament for it, it's an extraordinary um, tool. One, you're recognizing what's happening. In order to note, you've got you've to see clearly what's going on. But um, two, if you notice the tone that you're noting, you can change your relationship by changing the tone, because if you're no, if you're seeing judging and just noting oh, judging, judging, you know, <laughs> yep, there's judging. You know. <laughs> there's some more, <laughs> judging, judging. You know, you're just feeding it without even realizing. But in one moment, you can change the whole experience and. I've done this uh, with many people, and if you haven't done it, or if you feel like doing it again, if you've been lost in the judging mind, I I recommend... This was about 90% of my practice for about a two-year period, because I knew the judging mind, or I should say I didn't see the judging mind clearly, but I knew I was completely lost in the judging mind, and I decided it needed to be the forefront of my practice. So this is what I did. Putting your hand to your cheek, just try it. Just say you've just seen yourself in the middle of a real judging thought, and you recognize it. And like you're caressing a baby, like you're making nice, as my grandmother would say, just with the kindest name as your caressing yourself silently, say to yourself, judging, judging. Like, it's okay, judging. Can you feel it? Just a moment of doing that. Once your body can feel what it's like to be that kind, you have more access to it, you remember it. And if you did nothing else on this retreat for the rest of the time, but practice noticing, judging in that way, it will be time very well spent, I can guarantee you. So that's one thing, having great compassion and forgiveness, particularly using the the tone of the noting. Another is just seeing how empty those thoughts are. Where did that thought come from? It has no more reality than one and one are two, you know, or one and one are three. It's just a thought that came in. Joseph has a very good instruction. He says if you get besieged by your thoughts, imagine they're coming from the person behind you. you know? <laughs> Because for all intents and purposes, they are. You, know? <laughs> you don't invite those thoughts in saying, you know, let's get really self-critical now. Okay? Let's really beat ourselves up. It just comes because of habit. And when you see how empty they are, thoughts are as real as we make them and as empty as we let them be. The choice is ours. But it simply takes seeing thought as thought. It's just these mental formations that bubble up that we take to be real. Another approach that helps to get a little bit of space around this comparing or judging mind is a sense of humor. At some point, you just have to either scream or laugh at the absurdity of it all. and One way to get a sense of humor around it is by counting the judgments. You might take a morning or an hour and just see how many you can count. Hey, doing pretty good, not much judgment, 78. It's slippery. On one retreat, I um, I was uh, I was noticing this, particularly at mealtime. You know that that really is when the judging mind comes into play. And uh, I I tacked on this phrase from the third Zen patriarch, which is. Uh, one of my, it is my favorite Dharma treatise, you know, the one that says the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. There's this one line in there that, uh, that struck me that I wanted to work with. It says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. Okay, that made sense to me, right on. So every time I had a judging thought, I would just tack on the burdensome practice of judging. Right? Just that, those words were enough to remind me. Okay, so I go into the the dining room, and a third portion she's having. <laughs> the burdensome <laughs> practice of judging. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 What a klutz he is. The burdensome practice of judging. Oh, I hope people see how mindfully I'm eating, the burdensome (laughs) practice of judging. And I would go through a meal, honestly, 50, 75 times that I caught, the ones that I caught. And after a while, you just have to laugh at it. It's crazy. But it's a very strong conditioned habit that we all share. And it gets very, very slippery too, as far as keeping your sense of humor. I had this experience a couple of, uh, a few years ago when I was, uh, I was sitting for about six weeks and uh, got this instruction, notice how any sense of self is being created. This just seemed like a very subtle and pithy instruction. I got really excited and actually was having a lot of fun working with it. And I, I actually, if you're in a space of practice that that seems useful for you. It's a very, very powerful tool. Just notice any way that sense of self is being created. And there I would be practicing this. One time I was, I was down by the, uh, at IMS in the lower, uh, in the basement they have this bowling alley and it's one of the, uh, it's the remnant, one of the remnants from this uh, uh, monastery that uh, that got the land from. and. I was on the bowling lane. It's one of my favorite places to walk. It's nice wood, and, and really getting into the practice. And along comes through this long walkway, long hallway, this uh, bull in a china shop kind of yogi, just kind of like clumps everywhere. And you know, he was, you know, the object of a lot of people's um, uh, work. (Laughter) and he had this he had this book right where he was writing people sometimes would write their experience if they were reporting their clearest sitting that sometimes could be the mode you know just reporting your clearest sitting your clearest experience right and sometimes people have little notepads when they're doing upandita style and he had this big book and was walking Claw- clomping as he was writing his experience of you know whatever you know right through through the hallway, and the thought came to me, well, I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. <laughs> <laughs> it's slippery, isn't it? So keeping your sense of humor is very, very important. Something else that I found useful in working with this judging mind, comparing mind, particularly when it's about unworthiness, is acting as if you were worthy. Or like Sylvia said the other other night, acting as if you are the best yogi. And you are the best yogi. You're the perfect one for you. And although at first it might seem kind of phony or pretend, after a while, just having that possibility, the mind doesn't know when it's just creating fabrication on some subtle level and when it's the truth. And over a while, it can become real. And I know this is so because I've seen it for myself. I, the, the reason that I, I dove so headlong into practice was I had such self-hatred and self-judgment growing up. I, I winced looking at a mirror. I just, just the thought, you know, ooh, you know that? If you know, if you've ever had that moment, you know, it's like, ooh, well, I had it most of my childhood, you know. And the thought that 20 years after, 25 years after doing this practice, that I could really like myself, it just, it would have seemed, seemed so remote, that possibility of really liking myself. And, you know, sometimes I get down on myself, it's just one thought away, getting back into third grade, but for the most part, I'm okay, I'm an okay guy, I do the best I can, and there is that possibility of cultivation, and you can do it too, it's first just entertaining the possibility that you're worthy of it, or doing it as a bodhisattva act, like I said, for, for everyone else. And you start to be more comfortable with wearing it. And then there are moments that you actually believe it. For the first 10 years of teaching, okay, I'll, I'll share a little secret with you. There was a place in my heart that apologized for being in the teaching seat. You know, who was I? I mean, I, got, I started to kind of like myself, but being a Dharma teacher, that's a whole other level. You know. Who am I? to say anything to anybody. You know? What is called the imposter phenomenon or IP. There's a great book, by the way, that was, that was helpful for me. If I'm so successful, why do I feel like a fake? You know? You know? Imagine giving a Dharma talk and thinking that you don't have anything to say or that you really don't belong and if they know it's just little Jamie from Queens you know <laughs> i'm in trouble you yeah. know well to do that you you focus on your good qualities on just any good quality with the loving kindness just focusing on something that you like about yourself something that you appreciate about yourself if nothing else than the sincerity that you bring to practice. That's what the neck deep in grace is all about. That starts to translate and you give it more and more energy and aliveness. Something else for this self-condemning or judging mind is taking refuge. Taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha taking refuge in the Sangha, there have been thousands and thousands, millions of people who've walked this path. And many, many, many who have experienced liberation. And they too, they did it, you too can do it. Taking refuge in the Dharma, in the truth that is inviting you every moment to wake up. And somehow you've heard the call enough to want to put this into practice, taking refuge in the Buddha, the historical Buddha, the Buddha's own example and his commitment, and even more fundamentally, that Buddha inside, that's why the Buddha taught. You know, he said, ah, at first he was reluctant, and then he saw, oh, there are other people who have just a little dust covering their eye, and they too can see what I see and taking refuge in the Buddha, is your own seed of awakening and honoring that. Because when you take a look, what is it that you're comparing? You're comparing that's not as good or better than somebody somebody else? When you see who you really are, and you see the love that's there or you see the awareness that is there that's just coming through you you know you can't take ownership of that how that awareness comes through you is a complete mystery what love is and the fact that we're capable of it is a complete mystery but it's here and to take credit or blame for not having enough or having a better awareness or a better love than somebody else. My awareness is better than their awareness. I mean, that's really missing the point because how awareness comes through, who knows, but it does. You listen to a sound and there's something that knows it. Without you even trying, it's right there. It meets it spontaneously and effortlessly. So is it your awareness? Is it your love? This is really taking refuge in the Buddha, in your own divinity shining through. It's just a play of consciousness moving through all of us. So, working with this conceit of I am is really going to another level and seeing who you really are. And when you see the judging mind or the comparing mind getting in the way, just know you're not alone in this. The trick is to not identify with it, as Wes Nisker said, Describes the three characteristics, you know, Dukkha, Anicca, and Anatta. Suffering, impermanence, and selflessness. He says, um, life is hard. It'll put you through changes, but don't take it personally. (laughs) And that is the secret, that last one. Don't take it personally. It's just your mind believing A story that says you're not enough, or you're better than, or you're equal to, don't take it personally. So, let's sit.